0: Here we go. Good evening, Crypt Keepers, and welcome to the Salem Witch Trials conclusion episode. I am joined, as always... By a man who's affectionately known as Harry Plotter.
1: Right. That's not bad. That's not bad. I saw the series of, I think, they must have been AI generated, but they were, it was like Harry Spotter. Mm -hmm. And it was like him all like roided out. (laughs) And it was, uh, the best, the best two were, you know, instead of Dobby, it was Throbby Mm -hmm. and uh, Neville Strongbottom. That's pretty rough. That was pretty good. <laughs>
0: He'd be popular in prison.
1: <laughs> uh,
0: when 9 11 happened, I was in a broadcasting school, and they just started calling Osama bin Laden "Harry Potter. and it was like a joke where there'd be, you know, like graffiti on the bathroom wall: "Harry Plotter's watching you" and stuff like that. So, uh,
1: I never yeah. heard that makes sense though
0: that's when uh i thought it was you know some arabs that flew planes into the towers that was a long time ago ryan i was very sleepy but (laughs) all right so do you want to just run over what they need to know real quick sure let her rip
1: yeah As always, it helps us if you guys want to share this with somebody that you think will like it. If you want to get in contact with us and make suggestions or comments, you can do that at crypticpodcast.gmail.com. It also helps to rate, comment, subscribe, whatever you can. I know that you can, well, I'm fairly certain you can comment on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or whatever you use. And that apparently has a pretty big impact, so that would help us. You can find us on TikTok and YouTube at Cryptique Podcasts with an underscore for TikTok and without one on YouTube. And check out our friends at Parabox in the show notes. And check out what we're selling at CryptiquePodcastStore.com.
0: Well done, Senor. All right. So, do you want to give us kind of a rundown of things?
1: Yeah, up to this point, we've seen a lot a lot of people accused of witchcraft. We've really gone in depth describing the politics in this area and in this time, the late 1600s in the New England area, how there were positions to change hands and people came into power who had more extremist and more rigid religious views, and how the area was essentially controlled by influential, wealthy people in churches you know the church was the center of your sort of social life at this time and these were the people who controlled it you know in your town or city it might be the people who hang out at this club or these restaurants or these theaters or they're members of you know whatever it is athletic club or something right but here it's it's the churches and we've seen a lot of people executed with very little evidence, spectral evidence, as Cotton Mather, one of the more prominent figures in this story, called it and at first he was one of the more influential people urging the folks running this court to, you know, don't just go with spectral evidence. You know, you may be doing what the devil wants you to do by just using this evidence and killing people who are innocent. And he sort of changed his tune. But the governor Governor Phipps, correct? Was the one who really started to turn the table and his own wife was accused when he came back from a military campaign. And he was like, whoa, well, whoa, well, no, we're not doing this anymore. And at the same time, two communications were sent back to England. One from the court saying, hey, we're hunting witches. And now we've been told to stop for kids. <laughs> and another one from Governor Phipps saying, I have put a stop to this because this is horrific. What do you want me to do? Yeah. But at this point, the court has moved around quite a bit the majority of the people that were left in the system are being not pardoned what's the word they're having their charges dismissed and those that are found guilty are being pardoned by the governor you know we we already went through basically the conclusion of what you would normally think of as the salem witch trials and we'll be getting into the sort of legal proceedings that came after that
0: So, all that being said, first off, go listen to the first episode, because... You will be lost without it. Absolutely, 100%. And also, we expect our court systems to take care of us, and that doesn't always happen, for sure. There are still things that I would classify as witch hunts going on, but we need to take you through like how quick this process was and exactly what happened so you can see just all the points of failure you know it's like you talk about the weakest link in a chain this is a chain of weak links and that's you know i think that's being complimentary all right you want to get
1: into the legal procedures sure you want me to start off yeah go ahead you got such a nice voice tonight Alright, in cases where an individual believed that a misfortune such as a loss, illness, or death was the result of witchcraft, they would lodge a formal complaint against the supposed witch with the local magistrates. If the complaint was deemed plausible and credible, which the bar for that seems to be very low, just basically you have to be accused, the magistrates would proceed by having the accused person arrested. That person would undergo a public examination, which is pretty similar to what we would consider an interrogation.
0: Except it would be in public. So it would be like you getting an interrogation in front of, you know, everybody you work with and your friends and family.
1: Well, and it could involve torture, coercion, things like that. Yeah. Not to say that coercion doesn't happen nowadays, because it definitely does. Yeah. Uh, The magistrates would employ... A lot of different methods to get a confession out of you they would use intense questioning and pressure um, just trying to compel that person to admit to practicing witchcraft once they were convinced that the complaint the complaint had merit and that person was deemed to be a credible suspect they would have their uh, they'd be transferred into the custody of a higher or superior court for further proceedings so, in the context of the Salem Witch Trials in 1692, the magistrates chose to delay certain cases until the arrival of the new charter and governor. Uh, we talked about that being part of the turnover and you know, part of what kind of allowed this to happen in the first place. This decision was made in anticipation of the establishment of a specialized court known as the Court of Oyer and Terminer, which would be responsible for handling these cases, which we talked about extensively in the last episode. So, one of those things that you hopefully listened to already. At this court level the next step involves convening a grand jury and this would be responsible for hearing testimony from witnesses who could provide information relevant to the accusations of witchcraft. The purpose of this was to evaluate the evidence and determine whether there was sufficient cause to formally indict the accused individual and proceed with a trial. So a lot of steps to it but again the bars are really low. The process here was critical in determining the fate of the accused during these trials and after the grand jury had reviewed the evidence and decided that there was enough to proceed the accused would be formally indicted on specific charges related to witchcraft those charges could include allegations of afflicting others with witchcraft or making an unlawful pact or covenant with the devil once the indictment was issued the accused would then proceed to trial Uh, During the Salem Witch Trials, the timeline for them could be very rapid. In some cases, trials took place shortly after the indictment, and in the case of Bridget Bishop, she was tried and convicted on the same day as her indictment. The swift process often resulted in expedited trials and unfortunately swift executions for those found guilty. And the executions during these witch trials occurred on four separate dates. So first, we have June 10th of 1692, when Bridget Bishop was executed. She was the first person tried, convicted, and executed as a result of the witchcraft hysteria. On July 19th, Sarah Good, Rebecca Nurse, Susanna Martin, Elizabeth Howe, and Sarah Wilds were executed, being the second group. August 19th, Martha Carrier, John Willard, George Burroughs, George Jacobs Sr., and John Proctor were executed. On September 22nd, we had Mary Eastie, Martha Corey, Anne Pewdeter, Samuel Wardwell, Mary Parker, Alice Parker, Wilmot Redd, and Margaret Scott. And this was the final round of executions related to these witch trials before things kind of started to get under control. So the trials resulted in a mix of outcomes, including executions, reprieves, and deaths while in custody. A lot of these were very fast, but... We've also discussed quite a few where they died just being held. Mm -hmm. You know, they were, like you had described before, they were held shackled in really poor conditions, not sheltered particularly well, and there were a number of people who died waiting for trial or waiting for their charges to be dropped or their part.
0: And then they had to pay the prison for their time in prison.
1: Yeah, they had to pay for their...
0: Or they couldn't get out.
1: (laughs) yeah. Alright, so just to give some examples, we've got Elizabeth Proctor who was given a temporary reprieve due to pregnancy. She gave birth in prison and her execution was postponed. This is one where I think we're unsure if she was ever actually executed. I think she was eventually, it was just stayed altogether. I think you're right, yeah. Uh, We have Abigail Faulkner given a temporary reprieve again due to pregnancy and her charges were eventually dropped. Mary Bradbury was convicted... Uh, in her absence, and she managed to escape execution because I think this is one where she didn't her family help her escape? wasn't this the yeah,
0: yeah, I think they just she she blazed trails, man. yeah, I don't I think blame her, her family
1: helped sneak her out of t- out of town. yeah Ann Foster was convicted but died in prison before her scheduled execution. Mary Lacey senior was convicted, but the execution was not carried out as she also died in prison. Dorcas Hoare was convicted, but her execution was not carried out. She was given a temporary reprieve and eventually released. And Abigail Hobbs was convicted, but her execution was not carried out, and we're not entirely sure what happened to her after the trials. History kind of lost track of her.
0: It's it's interesting on a couple uh, things that you mentioned. First... I wonder if these people that died in prison if that debt was passed on to their next of kin or whatever. Just out of curiosity that's something. Just because I'd like of like the
1: level of pettiness that was in yeah. these trials all along.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then two, one thing that I'm really glad about is that it could have gone south pretty pretty bad. When these women were pregnant, if this, you know, Samuel Paris or any of these ministers or whatever had decided, like, oh my gosh, that's a demon baby, you know what I mean? It could have gotten bad
1: or, yeah. or worse, I should say, but worse, yeah, a lot worse. All right, and we will have more about Giles Corey in particular after a quick break.
0: So we mentioned Giles Corey earlier. He was pressed to death during the Salem witch trials. And he basically just refused to talk. They were trying to get him to say, yes, I'm a witch. Yes, I signed the devil's book, you know, blah, 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 blah. And he would not even enter a plea. So this was his silent protest and uh, it cost him a lot. So his act of resistance is often interpreted as a form of protest against the unjust proceedings of the court and the hysteria that had overtaken the community. Corey's determination to avoid participating in what he saw as a flawed trial even at the cost of his own life serves as a powerful symbol of resistance against an oppressive system. After their executions, their bodies were often treated with disrespect and denied proper burials which still doesn't make sense to me. I would like to think that you know in a better world if a church thought somebody was doing something like this they would intervene in a positive way. Like hey, we're going to bring you back. You know, you're going to you're going to be okay. We're going to get through this. We're going to get you know, get this out of you or whatever. But anyway, The Puritan belief system of the time, influenced by the idea of spectral evidence and suspicion of witchcraft, led to the excommunication of convicted witches and the denial of Christian burial rites. It's believed that after the bodies of the accused were cut down from the trees where they were hanged, they were hastily buried in shallow graves without proper ceremony or markers family members and sympathizers might have later reclaimed the bodies under the cover of darkness to provide them with more respectful burials on family property again I think that denying someone a Christian burial is just awful if if that's what they wanted alright you want to get into spectral evidence I I want you to take the next one I'm ready
1: man All right. Spectral evidence was a significant component of the accusations and trials, as we've talked about before. (laughs) And something that even the people who were really pushing for this said that it should not be trusted. Uh, But it involved the afflicted individuals claiming to see the apparition or shape of the person they believed was afflicting them. The debates over the validity of this evidence revolved around the question of whether the devil required the permission of the accused person to use their shape for affliction. So whether the devil acquired the permission of that person? Yeah, it's kind of like the idea that a vampire needs your permission to get into your house. Those who opposed the use of spectral evidence argued that the devil could assume the shape of any person without their consent. They believed that accusing someone solely based on the testimony of an afflicted individual who claimed to have seen the spectral shape was unreliable and unjust. On the other hand, the court's position which was accepted by some Puritan clergy and legal authorities of the time, was that the devil needed the permission of the accused person to use their shape for this purpose. This theological perspective led to the acceptance of spectral evidence in the trials. So again, it's because of this sort of religious zeal at the time that this all really happened. And like you you put it really well in the beginning that you have to, to be a good Christian, you have to accept that there's the devil as well because it's all part of the same sort of ecosystem. good point. So, if the afflicted claimed to see the apparition of a specific person and the accused was believed to have made a pact with the devil, that was taken as evidence of the accused person's guilt. Cotton Mather's book, The Wonders of the Invisible World, was written to defend the court's handling of the trials and to provide a justification for the use of spectral evidence. Mather believed that the court had been cautious and careful as he had urged them to, in its proceedings, and that the trials were a necessary response to the perceived threat of witchcraft. He argued that the devil's influence was real, and that the afflicted individual's claims should be taken seriously. Mather did express some reservations about relying solely on spectral evidence, acknowledging that it could be presumptive, and not enough on its own to secure a conviction. However, he ultimately defended the use of such evidence as part of a broader framework of investigation. On the other hand, Robert Califf, a contemporary critic of the trials, had a different perspective. In his book, More Wonders of the Invisible World... Yep. Yeah, Califf criticized Mather's stance on the court's approach. He argued that confessing to witchcraft was, in some cases, a way to avoid a trial and the potential for execution. He pointed out that individuals like Tituba and Dorcas Good, who confessed to being witches... I'm sorry, the name Dorcas is still great.
0: It was popular back then, man. That was the number, like, 348
1: most popular name in 1692 Salem. (laughs) Uh, These people were not subjected to the same fate as those who maintained their innocence and went to trial, which is, you know, something that can still happen today. If you have a good story or an excuse or you just, you know, go along with it and you sign a deal... You might be out easier than if you just tried to say that you're innocent. That's sad. I mean, you see it in a lot of light of like uh, courtroom dramas and police shows. Like, hey, if you just say that you did this, it's not that bad, and you'll be done.
0: Dude, my wife has like seven illegal muffler tickets because <laughs> she pled, pled down all her speeding tickets and stuff throughout her you know throughout her life, and they all got pled down to muffler violations huh. so like if you look her up on case net she's got like seven cases for
1: a bad muffler <laughs> that's great <laughs> seven seems like a lot though yeah it's it's a lot and she's got a lead foot or a lead muffler used to all right <laughs> uh, okay so the letter the return of several ministers consulted sent by mather and other ministers to the court was significant in this letter, the ministers urged the magistrates not to rely solely on spectral evidence for convictions, emphasizing the need for caution and additional corroborating evidence. This letter likely influenced the court's decision to eventually rule that spectral evidence was inadmissible, which marked a turning point in the trials. The influence of precedents such as the Bury St. Edmunds witch trial is also notable. The use of spectral evidence in this particular trial, as supported by figures like Sir Matthew Hale and Thomas Brown, provided a precedent that colonial magistrates looked to when making decisions about the admissibility of evidence in the Salem trials. And this is still basically how the court system works today.
0: (laughs) Well, I don't think they let much uh, spectral evidence in.
1: No, but I mean the idea that if it's been allowed before, it can be allowed again. But Mm -hmm. do you want to get into which cake? I do, which which I wish was a new hostess thing for Halloween, but it's.
0: Yeah, it might be my my new nickname for my little dog, Witch Cake.
1: Oh Oh, man, we were looking at the uh, the dog food that we've been buying, and we found a Hmm. good name for Pepper, our docks, and Mini Chunks, because that was on (laughs) it was on the bag, and it's like, yeah, that's that was Pepper's nickname in high school. (laughs) That's
0: that's good stuff, man. All right, the Witch Cake. The witch cake was believed to be a superstitious remedy or counter magic to counteract the effects of witchcraft and evil spirits. So, this is supposed to be anti witch. So, we all are on the same page. Mary Sibley, a church member and neighbor of Reverend Paris, reportedly directed John Indian, an enslaved man who worked for Paris, to create this cake. The cake was made from a mixture of rye meal. And Ryan's favorite, the Urine of Afflicted
1: Girls. I mean, that's why uh, Surge got taken off the market, I heard. <laughs> Contain the Urine of Afflicted Girls.
0: Could be. <laughs> I, for- I forgot about Surge, man.
1: Oh, I drank a lot of that stuff.
0: It's good for a minute.
1: Probably part of why I am the way I am today. Could be. So, the purpose of this
0: cake... Who do you think is going to eat this cake? Have you not read ahead?
1: No, I no, I don't. I don't know anything about this one.
0: Okay, so they make this urine. I want, cake.
1: I want the suspense. I wanted this.
0: They make this urine cake <laughs> to battle witchcraft. Uh huh. But the good part is, you don't have to eat it. You give it to a dog, with the belief that the dog's consumption of the cake would somehow reveal the identity of the witch or witches responsible for afflicting the girls. So I couldn't find anything about how that is
1: supposed to work. Maybe it's like the diarrhea spatter on your hot wall (laughs) after the dog eats it. It's supposed to like, it's like a Rorschach painting. (laughs)
0: Like tea leaves? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The asparagus mancer lady?
1: Yeah, it's like people who are like, I saw Trump in my toast or whatever. Yeah. It's like, oh, I saw Goody, I saw Goody Dorcas in my, uh my dog's diarrhea after it ate the witch cake
0: well this act was an attempt to discover the source of the witchcraft and alleviate the suffering of the afflicted so they think they're doing a good thing but when you do anything in this town that's not 100 percent puritan they're gonna think that it's witchcraft so bad idea especially if it's called a witch cake the creation of the witch cake is a reflection of the prevailing beliefs and superstitions of the time as well as the sense of desperation and fear that grip the community as the accusations and afflictions spread. While the witch cake may seem peculiar to us today, it sheds light on the intense atmosphere. Despite the discrepancies, the overall context of the witch cake incident remains consistent. It was an attempt to discover the source of the witchcraft afflictions and alleviate the suffering of the afflicted girls. Tell us about the touch test.
1: Alright, the touch test was a widely used method during the Salem Witch Trials to determine if an accused person was indeed a witch. This test was based on the belief that witches had the power to transfer their malevolent influence or affliction through touch. If an afflicted person's symptoms subsided or the fit stopped after the accused witch touched them, it was taken as evidence of guilt. So all you had to do was pick the person you didn't like, pretend to be afflicted, mm-hmm. and then let them touch you and stop. Yep. Like it was so easy.
0: That's death penalty evidence. I
1: mean, right even there. if it wasn't mold, like we were talking about before, or what do mm-hmm. we call it? What was it? What was the term? It was ergot. Yeah, ergot poisoning. Even if it wasn't that, like there, there was at least one vindictive person who realized, like, oh, this is so simple, <laughs> right? Like, oh, they're they're just you know in their little sixteen hundreds village, like, oh, this bitch thinks she's cute, huh? I'm gonna I'm gonna show her.
0: Well, we'll also find out, kind of in the aftermath, that people still aren't really being held accountable. You know, at, at some point, I, I realize a lot of these afflicted girls were young. They were kids. But I mean, keep in mind, you know, 15 years old in 1692 is usually like married with two kids. You know what I mean? So it, it's not, they're not really comparable to like 12 and 15 year olds today so much. Your silence makes me know you agree.
1: Yeah, I do agree. I was actually, I was trying really hard not to mention um, Interview with the Vampire, the movie.
0: Hmm. It's been a long time.
1: Yeah, he starts off Brad Pitt, because I I read the book, but I don't remember if the book started off this way. But he's saying, you know, I was like 20 and, uh, you know, inherited this uh, plantation and all this stuff. And he's like, things were different. I was a man at that age, you know, with a wife and a child and all this stuff.
0: Yeah. quick break? Quick break. Welcome back, crib Keepers. Keep rolling.
1: Alright, so... As we were talking about the touch test and these ways of determining if somebody's a witch or not, there are stories about, you know, those who were accused and what what they said happened. So here we'll get into one of those. We were blindfolded and our hands were laid upon the afflicted persons. They being in their fits and falling into their fits at our coming into their presence as they said. Some led us and laid our hands upon them and then they said they were well and that we were guilty of afflicting them whereupon we were all seized as prisoners by a warrant from the Justice of the Peace and forthwith carried to Salem. So that is one account of an accused witch. Blindfolded them, brought them in, put their hands on some people. The people stopped freaking out. They're like, you're guilty. Easy as that.
0: It's insane.
1: And then Reverend John Hale explained how this was supposed to work. The witch, by the cast of her eye, sends forth a malefic venom into the bewitched to cast him into a fit, and therefore the touch of the hand doth by sympathy cause that venom to return into the body of the witch again. And they even spelled malefic and venom in oldie English kind of ways, just so you know they're serious about it. Okay, but we have other evidence. Uh, confessions.
0: Malefic just means... If anybody doesn't know, it just means causing or capable of causing harm or destruction, especially by supernatural means.
1: But they spelled Venom with an E, which makes it old-timey. Oh, yeah. Badass. Okay, so confessions. Yeah. Oh, dude, they should make a steampunk version of Venom from the Spider-Man comics and put an E on the end of it.
0: It's been done. Has it? didn't see
1: it? No, No. I'm just kidding. (laughs) That's all you, brother. You're getting my hopes up. Like a Gotham by Gaslight, except it's Venom. Alright, so they did have confessions. Some accused individuals confessed to witchcraft, often under duress or pressure during interrogations. Confessions were seen as strong evidence of guilt, although they were sometimes obtained through coercion or manipulation or torture or other methods as we've talked about. Uh, Testimony by confessed witches. Confessed witches were sometimes coerced or encouraged to implicate others as fellow witches. You know, the first time that we heard of that was Tichiba.
0: Yeah, but we see that, we see that throughout history too. They're, you know, they're like, oh, just tell us who else did it. Man, nobody. Oh, just tell okay, fine. Fucking Ryan did it. <laughs> With the candlestick right. in the library.
1: <laughs> right, right. That type of testimony was considered damning and often led to the accusation of more individuals. The discovery of Poppets and magical objects. Poppets or small dolls, were sometimes associated with witchcraft. If poppets were found in the possession of an accused person, they were seen as evidence of malevolent magic. I heard a pretty good joke the other day. Let her rip. But it's you know, a wife calling down to her husband like, "Do you do you ever get this pain? Like it's like a hearing pain, like somebody's poking it with a needle." Mm-hmm. And he goes, "No." And then she shuffles around a little bit and she goes, "What about now?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I knew it alright making some witch cakes
1: for him uh, for uh, dinner. <laughs> making some poppets alright so witches teats we talked about those before the belief in witches teats stem from the notion that witches had supernatural marks on their bodies that were insensitive to pain these marks were often believed to be where the devil had suckled the discovery in quotes of such marks on an accused person's body was taken as evidence of witchcraft The Salem Witch Trials highlight the dangers of relying on superstition, fear, and prejudice rather than on fair and rational legal processes. Many ministers were closely engaged with the Witch Trials, some in support and others in criticism. And here are a few additional details about the roles of these people. So Increase Mather... A prominent Puritan minister and scholar and father of Cotton Mather, who we've been talking about, played a notable role in influencing the direction of the trials through publishing pamphlets and books and just generally being a 1600s Puritan influencer. Right, with the podcast. Yeah, he was initially skeptical of the use of spectral evidence and wrote a letter titled, Case of Conscience Concerning Evil Spirits, in which he expressed concerns about the validity of the evidence. His letter, along with other ministers' writings, contributed to the eventual exclusion of spectral evidence from the trials. Cotton Mather, Increase's son, was also a well-known minister who wrote prolifically during this time. He wrote Wonders of the Invisible World, a defense of the trials, which aimed to justify the court's actions. He later expressed caution about relying on spectral evidence. Samuel Willard, a Boston minister, wrote a pamphlet titled Some Miscellany Observations, on our present debates respecting witchcrafts in a dialogue between S and B because they were really good at titling things back in the day. In this work, Willard criticized the use of spectral evidence and argued for a more cautious approach in the trials. Although, you know, I make fun of the way they name things back then, but nowadays, you know, if I go to the bookstore, I don't know what anything's about. Yeah. I look at a book and it's like the purple beeper. It's like I have no clue what this book's about or it'll be like the unraveled cassette and it's yeah you have no idea what anything's about at least back then if you looked at the title you kind of had an idea of what you were going to get
0: is that why you only go for the books with Fabio on the cover Mm. (laughs) old goose face himself
1: (laughs) I my favorite kind of books and this is real are sci-fi books from the dollar store hmm they're always so weird. They don't take themselves too seriously. They're great. Moving on. In this work, Willard criticized the use of spectral evidence and argued for a more cautious approach in the trial. So quite a few of these ministers or people who were defending it are saying, like, well, you, we might be going too far. Uh, Reverend John Hale, the former minister of Salem Village, initially supported the trials and even wrote a book titled A Modest Inquiry into the Nature of Witchcraft in Defense of Them. However... He later became critical of the proceedings after witnessing the hysteria and injustices that unfolded. Cases of conscience concerning evil spirits appears to have been a strategic attempt to address the growing skepticism around spectral evidence while maintaining a delicate balance between acknowledging doubts and upholding the beliefs of the time. The inclusion of his petition to the Salem court in support of spectral evidence and the tone of the book suggests an attempt to address the criticisms and doubts that were emerging. Thomas Brattle's open letter with its sarcastic tone and ridicule of the superstitions of Salem and Increase Mather's defense of his son highlights the growing divide between those who were critical of the trials and those who continued to defend them. Samuel Willard's Some Miscellany Observations on our present arrays reflecting witchcrafts and dialogue between S and B provides a fascinating glimpse into the evolving perspectives on the Salem witch trials. You know, just to turn things around in like a year or so is pretty good for back then, I feel like. Yeah. I feel like information didn't spread that quickly, so it was hard to have a a real change. Uh, But by using the pseudonyms S and B to represent Salem and Boston and attributing the work to P.E. and J.A., Philip English and John Alden, Willard cleverly concealed his identity while presenting a dialogue that critically examined the proceedings. So true. So would you like to... Go over the aftermath of all this and kind of the end of the witch trials.
0: We'll see. The aftermath of the Salem witch trials was marked by ongoing efforts to clear the names of those who had been unjustly accused and convicted. Survivors, family members, and their supporters worked to establish the innocence of the individuals who had suffered during the trials they sought recognition and compensation for the harm done to those wrongly accused and condemned. Over the centuries, the descendants of those who were affected by the trials continued to honor the memories of their ancestors. Commemorative events were held in Salem and Danvers, particularly in 1992 to mark the 300th anniversary of the trials. In November 2001, the Massachusetts legislature passed an act formerly exonerating all those who had been convicted during the trials. The innocent were named, and their convictions were officially reversed. In May 2022, Elizabeth Johnson's conviction was reversed by the Massachusetts Senate after schoolchildren discovered the oversight. That's kind of cool, right? Like, maybe somebody's, you know, looking at this case and doing some research and stuff like that, teaching the kids how to search back through history, and they find this and say, hey, wait a minute. You guys forgot about her.
1: Yeah. That's definitely something a nosy know-it-all kid would do because it's something (laughs) I would do. Because it makes me think of being at the, um, what is it, the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago where they have a U-boat Mm-hmm. And they tell this story of the capture of the U-boat and all this stuff. And they talk about how there were you know, 40 people on there and blah, blah, blah. And then after like 20 or 30 minutes of these stories and going through it, they're like, and in the end, 39 people were taken off at whatever. And I was the last person to leave. And I asked the girl who was leading the tour, I was like, what happened to the last person? She's like, what? And I said, you said there were 40. And you said there were 39. What happened to the last person? And she was like, most people don't catch them and she explained that it was this like weird accident with like an airlock that caused I guess the like valve or whatever mm-hmm. to kind of open the thing up that they just basically got crushed by seawater coming in or something like that oh uh, that's like a nightmare I held on to that I was like I'm waiting until everybody else leaves I'm gonna find out what happened to that last person so it'd be some irritating kid like me you'd be like what about Elizabeth <laughs>
0: Yeah, but good for them, and good for her, and good for her family, because it, it means something.
1: Yeah, and it's cool that they did that, that they took the initiative to do any of this stuff, and then listen to school children who found mm-hmm. this.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, also, it's cool that the ancestors, you know, this late, are still trying to... You know carry on and and make sure all this is closed up as well as can be and everybody you know admits their mistakes mm-hmm. but so elizabeth's was the final exoneration and like we said that was may of 2022 so we haven't heard of anything since then have you no no all right no but i to.
1: can tell you about reversals <laughs> all right compensation us. Thomas Maul, I want to say Maul, it's M-A-U-L-E, but Maul sounds pretty cool, Uh, who was a prominent Quaker, was one of those who publicly condemned the proceedings and the handling of the trials by Puritan leaders. In chapter 29 of his book, Truth Held Forth and Maintained, which is actually a good title, Maul strongly criticized the action of the Puritan authorities and their willingness to put people to death based on accusations of witchcraft. He emphasized the importance of preserving innocent lives, stating that it would be preferable for many alleged witches to go free than for one innocent person to be executed.
0: Absolutely. That's how our system is set up. And I hate it when guilty people go free, but it is intolerable when innocent people suffer.
1: Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As a result of publishing his book and openly criticizing the authorities, Maul faced legal repercussions. He was imprisoned for 12 months before eventually standing trial. Fortunately, he was found not guilty and his views on the injustice of the witch trials were acknowledged by the outcome of his trial. And remember, this is before it was the U.S., so there's no freedom of speech. Right. Not guaranteed, anyway. Thomas Maul's case highlights the courage of individuals who dared to speak out against the prevailing norms and challenge the actions of those in power.
0: Badass Quaker, man.
1: Mm-hmm. Is he the dude on the box?
0: He might be. <laughs> Are the Do the Quakers and Puritans, like, beef or what? I, I thought they were kind of the same thing.
1: I don't know. Yeah, do they meet up behind the barn and they're like sharks and jets coming at each other
0: (laughs) i don't know could be all right i'm going to tell you about the good reverend samuel willard on december 17 1696 the general court of massachusetts ruled that a fast day would be held on january 14 1697 this day of fasting and reflection was dedicated to acknowledging the quote tragedy raised among us by Satan and his instruments, end quote, referring to the witch trials. As part of the efforts to acknowledge the mistakes and seek forgiveness, Samuel Sewell, one of the judges who had presided over the trials, took a significant step. He asked Reverend Samuel Willard to read his apology to the congregation of Boston's South Church. I don't know, man. Would it have been better for him to just get up and do it? I don't know what the, you know, if that would have been appropriate or not at the time, but it seems to me that him reading it himself would have more impact. In his apology, Sewell publicly acknowledged the, quote, blame and shame of his role in the late commission of Oyer and Terminer at Salem. Thomas Fisk and 11 other trial jurors also sought forgiveness for their roles in the witch trials. Robert Califf played a crucial role in preserving and disseminating a more critical perspective on the Salem witch trials. Between 1693 and 1697, Califf diligently collected various materials related to the trials, including correspondence, court records, petitions, and other accounts. He then juxtaposed these documents with excerpts from Cotton Mather's Wonders of the Invisible World in a compilation titled, More Wonders of the Invisible World. As we said, Burn. Caliph's intention was to present an alternative view of the events and challenge the prevailing narrative that supported the trials. Caliph encountered resistance when trying to get his work published in Boston. Due to the contentious nature of the subject matter and the ongoing influence of the Mathers, He took his compilation to London, where it was eventually published in 1700. Well, moving along, between 1700 and 1703, several petitions were submitted to the Massachusetts government urging for the formal reversal of the convictions of those who had been found guilty during the trials. The convictions carried serious legal consequences, even for those who had not been executed. As long as the convictions remained on the books, those who had been wrongly accused and convicted were at risk of being targeted with further accusations and persecution. Initially, the general court responded to the petitions by reversing the attainder or legally nullifying the conviction, but that was only for a few of the individuals who had filed petitions. So we need to keep in mind that not everybody is very well educated at this time. And actually filing petitions, you know, you may have to do some things that would be, like, well out of the comfort zone for a lot of these accused people, right?
1: Yeah, presumably. I mean, a lot of them probably couldn't read or write or anything, so it might be prohibitively expensive to get somebody to help them do this.
0: Yeah, I mean, they're still trying to, you know, get back what they lost when they were in prison. But Abigail Faulkner Sr., Elizabeth Proctor and Sarah Wardwell were all able to clear their names up in the eyes of the law, but the efforts to seek justice continued. You want to tell us about those efforts? Yeah.
1: In 1703, another petition was submitted advocating for a more comprehensive resolution to address the wrongful convictions and their repercussions. But it wasn't until 1709 that the General Court took further action on this matter, responding to a renewed request for justice. In May of that year, 22 individuals who had either been convicted of witchcraft during the Salem Witch Trials or were relatives of those who had been convicted came together to present a petition to the government. This petition carried a dual purpose. First, to seek a formal reversal of attainder, like you said before, a nullification for those who had been wrongfully convicted... And second, to request compensation for the financial losses and damages they had suffered as a result of the trials.
0: Boom. That, (laughs) right there... I mean, how can you say that they don't deserve compensation? Right. Just
1: throwing that out there. Go ahead. Right. I mean, they had to pay for their imprisonment. Not to mention losing time working or whatever it was that they did... And lost opportunities because of this being on their record. Yeah, it's ridiculous. The petitioners, many of whom had endured the consequences of the trials for years, sought acknowledgement of their innocence and the removal of the legal stain that the convictions had cast upon their names and reputations. Additionally, they aimed to receive restitution for the economic hardships and hardships their families had endured due to the fallout of the witch trials.
0: In 1703, nearly a decade after the trials, there was a move towards reconciliation within the Salem Village Church. The church, under the leadership of Reverend Joseph Green, took the significant step of reversing the excommunication of Martha Corey. These reversals of the excommunication should be immediate upon the nullification of the conviction, right? I mean, It should just be common sense. Ann Putnam, Jr., one of the prominent accusers during the trials, made a public apology and sought forgiveness for her actions. Did she? In August 1706, she joined the Salem Village Church and publicly admitted that she had been misled by Satan into accusing innocent people. Does that sound like accountability to you, Ryan?
1: Not particularly.
0: I understand that she's probably scared, but again, we go to, it wasn't my fault Satan did it. It, When you have a society of people that feel like they bear no responsibility because they've been misled by somebody, tricked, it just doesn't hold up. You can't have a civilization where people don't take responsibility, but... In October 1711, the general court passed a bill that reversed the judgments against the 22 people listed in the 1709 petition for reversal of attainder or nullification of conviction. This act formally acknowledged the wrongful convictions and sought to clear the names of those who had been unjustly accused and convicted. Two months later, in December 1711, Governor Joseph Dudley authorized monetary compensation to the survivors and relatives of the accused. The amount, again, this is going to be in pounds because we're not America yet. America. A total amount of 578 pounds and 12... uh, Ryan, help me with my British money. Would this be like six pence Probably shillings. Shillings, there you go.
1: I mean, that would be my assumption. I'm trying to figure out what that would be worth today.
0: All right. So basically... They were given five hundred and seventy-eight pounds and twelve shillings, and but that was to be divided among the uh, twenty-two.
1: That is five hundred and seventy-eight pounds, twelve shillings, which would roughly be worth. Um. Actually, you know what?
0: I don't. Otherwise, you I'd know, tell you.
1: Okay, just a complaint here. The pandemic and all this has made things really hard. Because inflation has changed so much. Yeah. It's actually really, really hard to say what money is worth at any given point. But best I can figure, given the inflation we've just had, uh, that would be about two hundred and sixty three yeah, two hundred and sixty three thousand dollars.
0: To be split up amongst twenty two.
1: Twenty two people or families or petitioners or yeah, however that's stated.
0: I don't know, man. It doesn't seem like much. (laughs) Yeah, well, they're not getting as much as they deserve. Let's put it that way. No,
1: definitely not. But you're also not getting, you know, multi-million dollar settlements back then.
0: True. While most of the accounts were settled within a year, it's notable that Philip English's extensive claims took until 1718 to be resolved. That's a long time. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I mean, we're talking 16 years on March 6th, 1712, Reverend Nicholas Noyes... Do you want to say anything about that name?
1: I'm holding it in. Okay.
0: And members of the Salem Church took a step towards reconciliation by reversing Noyes' earlier excommunications of Rebecca Nurse and Giles Corey. And there's a ton of monuments, statues, memorials, and stuff like that all throughout Salem, but it's also kind of like an industry there. So... Mm-hmm. It is what it is. I also saw a recent article where they built the world's biggest Ouija board there. It's like a basketball court.
1: Huh. Why?
0: Oh, to honor the people that were wrongly accused of being witches, of course.
1: Of course. (laughs) Of course.
0: I mean, what other motivation could there possibly be?
1: to invite the world's biggest spirit in when you forget to close the (laughs) session
0: (laughs) what would that be? would that be Jafar from uh, Aladdin when he's turning into a genie? yeah
1: pretty much I was going to say like Grendel from Beowulf or something like that but that's so much better Jafar
0: alright well we'll give you our final thoughts on the Salem Witch Trials after a quick break back Keepers All right, what are your final thoughts, man?
1: I think the scariest thing to take away is how similar this sounds to things that happen today. To people who are swept up by something. Mhm whatever the hysteria of the day happens to be and very little evidence is required once they're in like a groove of just going after people mm-hmm. and i think a lot of that comes down to incentives like what what is your incentive for doing this is it you know maybe your incentive for accusing people is like better standing in the community or maybe your incentive for prosecuting i mean you hear cases of police who go after the wrong people and try to put the wrong people in jail, like like these you know documentaries that you see of people who spend twenty years in and then they're proven innocent pretty easily, mm-hmm. but they had a lawyer who was just did not care about them as a person, did not care about the truth, only cared about winning, only cared about their like conviction rate or whatever, you know. And this is pretty similar, you know, using very shaky evidence, just pushing through with what they have, and then the idea of religious extremism being kind of the norm and just running wild Mm -hmm. scary but yeah go ahead
0: so i heard a story today which definitely uh happened in the 2000s these police officers had this suspect and they had dna this person was uh killed and sexually assaulted and this 20-year-old kid was, and and I say kid, you know, it's man, whatever. Um, And they convinced him that they can lie about lie detector tests. Right? So they had him take Mm -hmm. a lie detector test. And then they told him that he was failing certain questions, and that the lie detector test Knew what had been blocked out of his memory so when they ask him did you murder this woman and he says no they're telling him that the lie detector test is going off and that he his, his conscious memory has blocked it out but it's still in his subconscious because he actually did it and they manipulated this kid for hours and hours and hours, convincing him that he did this and coercing a confession out of him, admitting that he had murdered and raped this woman. And then it came out well, he actually, his alibi checked out and the DNA that was left on the body belonged to somebody else who like lived across the street from the woman and was like a violent sex offender that should scare you
1: wow yeah yeah that's a wild story man i hadn't heard that
0: and you know eventually things kind of got sat right or whatever but guess who didn't show up when this guy was getting let out of prison
1: the cop who convinced him to do this?
0: Yep. Yep. So, I don't know. The more things change, the (laughs) more they stay the same. I think that we've kind of covered everything in depth, and I don't want to get into any big themes, but I think that if you sat through this story and you're at this point, I think that you probably learned a lot because when I started doing some research for this podcast, I realized that I really didn't understand how bad it was. How these these children with uh, some unseen motivation can just say that the spirit of this person came to me and is making me shake and contort my body and that person gets put to death. You know, I realized like, oh, this was bad. I I knew it was, you know, it was all innocence that were, you know, put to death. But I didn't Mm -hmm. realize just how shaky the evidence was and how horrifically they were treated. Yeah. I think the brutality of the whole thing, you know... Physically, mentally, spiritually, it was just brutal from start to finish.
1: So I think the defund the police movement is probably misguided. Uh, it's, it's an idea. I'm going to come to it, but you know, like defund the police when it's, when it's, you know, whatever, whatever your particular view is, you may have a good reason for thinking that, but when you're, defunding them in certain areas and then like Walmart has to move out and the grocery stores have to move out because they're getting you know robbed all the time or Mm -hmm. they're being allowed to shoplift you know like people are allowed to shoplift from it like essentially it's sort of implicitly allowed Mm -hmm. not great so I think what we'll do what we should do in our little store is we'll have a defund the court of lawyer and (laughs) Terminer or defund the witch trials I think we should make a Defund the Witch Trials t-shirt. All right. Right? Yeah, I'm
0: cool with that. Yeah. Yeah, I think... I, I didn't know where you were going,
1: so... I know. I wanted to make you nervous. Yeah. <laughs> I think we can all get behind this stance. Yeah. That's that's what I'm saying. It's like, whatever your, whatever your stance is, we can all get behind Defund the Witch Trials.
0: Yeah, and we just... We need better people. We just everywhere, man. We just need better people. I,
1: I watched, God, I watched a video earlier today where they were going over, like, why, like, why are our politicians all so old? Mm-hmm. Like, they're one of these, one of these politicians, I can't think of her name, because it's not something I was really paying a lot of attention to, but they're voting on, like, military spending. hmm And this woman, she's, like, 90-something. And she's, like, trying to, que- you know, ask questions or whatever. And somebody comes up behind her and he's, like, just say I. And she's, like, I- all right, I. And everybody kind of has this little laugh. And she smiles, like, oh, me. But it's, like, why do we have, I mean, Mitch McConnell <laughs> had that moment where, like, like the tape broke. And he just, like, stopped talking for a 2nd mm-hmm. Remember? And just, like, stared blankly.
0: Mm-hmm. They thought he had. A, they thought he had a stroke
1: right yeah it's like yeah it's like two wires touched that shouldn't and he just like shorted out for a minute
0: or maybe he's a like, hologram <laughs> he, AI. he looks
1: he looks uh, but it's like yeah they were talking about maybe maybe some of these people don't know what they're doing anymore if you have people literally going up behind like you know important politicians and just telling them what to do and they just do it mm mm-hmm. mhm Like, maybe we shouldn't have the government run. And this is not meant to offend anybody who's old, but maybe, like, people in, like, really high-stress situations Mm -hmm. should not be people who are generally considered, like, not optimal for employment anymore, because they're, like, over 70 or, in some cases, over 80 or 90. Well, I
0: mean, I have no problem with, you know, our chosen leaders that do nothing but brag about themselves, take competency tests... I mean, I don't, I don't support it outside of government, but I have no problem with, you know, people that are in positions of power taking competency tests, right? Yeah,
1: like, like to bring up a pretty uh, hairy subject again. If you are arguing, let's say you're in government. And you're arguing that the forest fires in California were set by a Jewish space laser
0: yeah we're not gonna maybe get back into that because maybe, maybe
1: maybe your competency should be called into question
0: well I I have no problem with everybody in government taking competency tests History tests I mean how about a test on what the Constitution means
1: or a test on like what's going on right now because I've seen inter- interviews with Biden where he references the war in Iraq or Afghanistan or whatever not in Ukraine hmm. I mean I get why he's saying it because we were involved in these conflicts in the Middle East for so long but it's like dude you're not even referring to the right war anymore right? Right. like I get that you know if you're on the right you want to see that kind of thing <laughs> if you don't support Biden and if you're on the left you want to be like oh I mean you can cut stuff together but it's like these are maybe you just shouldn't be doing it Uh, yeah uh, I don't know maybe we should be sure that he's like okay I don't know it's like when uh, the Trump Kafifi thing happened on Twitter remember that he just like posted this like random assortment of letters like he just passed out and whacked his face off his phone (laughs) and then there were no tweets from him for like a while it's like, shouldn't somebody have checked on him? Yeah. I, he could have just had a stroke and nobody did anything. Everybody's just like making fun of this weird typo tweet that he sent out.
0: I try to stay away from politics as much as I can. It just drains me.
1: Yeah, I don't like to pay a lot of attention to it. I've, I'll i find my parents watching. Anybody watching Fox or CNN, I think I've said it before. It's like, you're just going to rye your brain. Absolutely. They're just they both become so partisan. Like my parents are like, which one do you watch? And it's like, I watch them both. Cause I assume they're both lying. Mm-hmm. If you watch them both, you're probably going to find something that overlaps. and might be true. It's <laughs> just, <laughs> I mean, I was, I was watching another thing. It's like an independent YouTube channel where they kind of explore some of these topics. I don't remember the name of it at the moment, but it, they went to like a uh, Trump rally and then they were, I think trying to talk to Democrats mm-hmm. and they were like, kind of putting a lot of these issues side by side like do you see how close the things you're concerned about are like do you realize that you're all like worried about the same thing it's just the people you choose to follow are different Yeah. and their, their argument is like maybe we should kind of come together and not be so polarized
0: <laughs> well that's exactly the opposite of what the government wants because everybody thinks that you know, the right wing and the left wing are just two different, you know, groups, but they're not. You know, they they want control. And they don't, it's not what you think. You know what I mean? It's, they want us divided because we're weak that way. Mm. And they want us fighting each other because that way we won't see all the travesties of justice that they're perpetrating. Yep. They go out for lunch together after these meetings where they go and, you know, argue and fight like it's WWE and then go hang out, you know, with (laughs) with Jeffrey Epstein together.
1: Yeah, they go have their eyes wide shut parties under a mountain. All of them. You know, the Bilderberg things or whatever. There was that ant that stood up to me.
0: Yeah, but we can forget about him. Yeah, it was just one ant. (laughs) One ant. Yeah, you're right. It's just one ant. Yeah, boss. They're puny. Hmm. Puny? Say, let's pretend this brain is a puny little ant. Did that hurt? (laughs) Nope. Well, how about this one? Are you kidding? (laughs) Well, how about this? you let one ant stand up to us then they all might stand up those puny little ants outnumber us a hundred to one and if they ever figure that out there goes our way of life it's not about food it's about keeping those ants in line all right let's just wrap this up that's all we've got for you on
1: witch. Trials. We're getting into a whole other podcast here because we're just like recording our normal conversation.
0: <laughs> all right, that's all we've got for you on the witch trials, man. You want to wrap it up?
1: Yeah, as always, like, share, subscribe, whatever you can do. Email us if you have suggestions, or if we got something wrong in this, or if we got some of the pronunciations wrong, or particularly if you or someone you know is named Dorcas. <laughs> I still really like that name. I'd love to meet somebody with that. Uh, but yeah, the email address is at gmail.com and we will talk to you guys in the next one.
0: Dorcas would be a good dog name. Big Goofy oh, Great Pyrenees God. or something.
1: Yes, yes. Or like an Alaskan Malamute. Yeah. Just massive.
0: Good evening, grip Keepers.